Hello, this is Brian Bullington, and I am pastor of New Song Family Church in Ventuk, Namibia. I'm so glad that you have joined us today, and it's my prayer that this podcast message will help you to grow closer to Jesus as you walk daily with Him. Dana pointed out that we're going through a series uh, called Amazing Grace, and this series focuses on the, the extraordinary ways that God will go to to pull us to Himself. And uh, we're going to continue that story today uh, with an extraordinary story that's in, in the Bible uh, about King Nebuchadnezzar. We'll get to him in just a moment. Uh, the issue today, though, is an issue of, of grace that we often try to sidestep, but we think about it probably every single day of our life. This issue of, of suffering in our life, the kind of suffering that draws us to God. It's not a theology that most of us like to talk about or think about because we don't like to suffer. None of us enjoy the process of suffering when we're in the middle of it. But God will use it to draw us to himself and and to protect us very often and always to bring us to a point of something greater than what we're limiting ourselves to in the moment, to bring us to a greater understanding, to, to, to get us to a deeper understanding of him and greater joy in our lives, to experience life as it's supposed to be experienced. He will allow us, or sometimes intentionally, he will... Uh, push us into a point of suffering so that we can see truly what it means to walk truly with him in the sweetness of that relationship. It's not an easy topic at all. I call it this morning divine frustration, uh, divine futility, subjected to God's divine uh, futility, his frustration where he actually places us in a situation where we struggle. Our story today begins... Uh, in the Old Testament, around 600 B.C., uh, the Bible records a story of King Nebuchadnezzar who was used uh, by God to humble and draw the people of Israel to God. But uh, God did not ignore King Nebuchadnezzar. Also, he wanted to draw him to himself as well. Uh, the, the book of Daniel tells us the story of this king. Uh, in the point of history, it's around 600 B.C., uh, it's after uh, the kings have reigned and fallen all through Israel, then Judah, and we get to the point of King Jehoiakim. Uh, this is several, about 50 years after the king we spoke about several Sundays ago to start the series off, King Manasseh. So King Manasseh, who was humbled by the Assyrians, then you have other kings who are humbled by the Egyptians, and now King Jehoiakim is, is being humbled by the king of Babylon. And in the process of this, King Nebuchadnezzar decides not only uh, to uh, capture King Jehoiakim, uh, the Bible tells us that God allowed uh, King Jehoiakim to be placed into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar does something very interesting. Uh, He's allowed to capture and humble the king of Judah, but that's not enough for King Nebuchadnezzar. He's also allowed to take the vessels that were used in the temple uh, and, and uh, so vessels of gold and silver and, and other utensils and, and, and brought them out of the temple of God and placed them in his temple of worship to other gods. He also decided to enslave uh, a lot of the teenagers, some of the more able, more beautiful, more handsome teenagers of the day that were from Israel. So he captures a bunch of them and brings them in to re-educate them. Uh, amongst those, the ones who shined brighter than all the other ones were Daniel. You know their names? You've probably heard of them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Have you ever heard these stories before? Yes. 
Daniel was their uh, Jewish name. And uh, not only did King Nebuchadnezzar capture them, but he also renamed them. You talk about <laughs> evil, all right? He's allowed to do it, though. He's allowed to capture them. His goal is to, to place these students of his, he's making them students now, to re-educate them uh, into, the, into the Chaldean ways. And he puts them into uh, the school of the Chaldeans for at least three years. The goal is, is to re-educate them and then to present them before the king after three years so that they will be able to bring wisdom uh, and, and be advisors to the king. That's his goal, is that ultimately they would be advisors. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to educate them, but God's goal was to use them to educate King Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't it interesting how God works? So Daniel and his friends are placed in a place of suffering. They're enslaved. They're sent to an education camps which they do not agree with. One of the first issues that they deal with is that they're forced to eat food that is not good for them and to drink alcohol, to which they resist. And they say, we, this, is, this is against our, our, our way of eating. And so they make a stand against the kind of diet. This is the first stand that's, that's made. And so the leaders of the day agree, and they see that the ways of God are better based on what Daniel making his stand. God continues to use Daniel and his friends throughout the book of Daniel you'll see this, and not just for King Nebuchadnezzar, but for multiple kings. The children, the children of King Nebuchadnezzar and other kings that came after that, God continues to use Daniel and his friends to be the instruments of God's, of God's wisdom, of God's love, to draw those kings and invite them also to humble themselves before God and discover life that can only be found in him. That's his whole ministry. Daniel's enslaved, and that's the rest of his life, is used by God in that environment to be a light. If you've ever read the book of Daniel, it's a fun book. It's a very interesting stories that you'll never read anywhere else. Fascinating. We see that there's this, uh, uh, this, um, this contest of power, and, and God's going to win. We see this King Nebuchadnezzar challenging the authority and the, the greatness of God. King Nebuchadnezzar is about a lot of things, but primarily in Scripture we see that he's about himself. Uh, he has a, a statue built, an enormous statue, a gold statue built, and he requires everyone to worship this gold statue. Daniel and his friends refuse to bow down. And so... King Nebuchadnezzar issues this warning. Uh, he's angry, he's furious because they refused to bow down to the gold statue that he built. The Bible tells us that he was so angry that his face contorted. I love that they threw that in scripture. <laughs> that is, he was so angry that his face is disfigured, so furious with them that they would not worship the golden image. And so he increased, he increased the fires of the furnace. The decree was that if, if people refused to worship the golden image, that they would be thrown into a fiery furnace, into fire and killed, burned alive. For Daniel and his friends, they increased the intensity of the furnace because the king was so angry. The, the fire was so hot that when they brought Daniel and his, his friends, his, his two friends, to the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, <laughs> those, those three, were placed into the fiery furnace 
And uh, it, it was so hot that the, those who placed them into the furnace died on the way to the fire. The Bible tells us that as they walked through the fire, there was one more person there, a fourth person, God protecting them. They were in there for a while. The king asked them to be removed. They stepped out. The Bible tells us that they didn't even smell like smoke. God delivered them. At this, King Nebuchadnezzar began to be humbled, uh, began to realize maybe, maybe the God of, of Daniel is, is a good God. He wasn't willing at that point to worship him yet, but he acknowledged that there's no greater God than the God of Daniel and his friends. God wasn't done with King Nebuchadnezzar because King Nebuchadnezzar would not humble himself before the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream prior to the fiery furnace. Uh, in this dream, he wanted his advisors to actually tell him what his dream was and then interpret the dream. None of his advisors were able to tell him the dream. And so he had them all killed. So then he invited Daniel, to the next one, his next set of advisors to come and tell him his dream and then interpret the dream. Uh, this concerned Daniel. You can imagine. <laughs> so the Bible tells us that he, he went to his friends and said, hey, listen, uh, we need to really pray <laughs> because not only do I need to interpret this dream, I also need to know what the dream is before I interpret it. They, they sought God and God gave them. Uh, God gave him the wisdom to know what the dream was. He shared this with the king. At that point, too, the king was humbled, but not quite there. I call that a, a seeker, <laughs> a seeker of God, but not quite yet there. It took something much more vicious than that. We see this in Daniel chapter 4, where he has another dream. And in this dream, the interpretation of the dream, he brings Daniel in, tells him his dream, doesn't make him tell him his dream. <laughs> Daniel interprets this dream to say, listen, you're, you're going to uh, become wild. Uh, you're going to lose your mind. You're going to start grazing like, like an animal. Daniel advises him in Daniel chapter 4. He says this. He says, please listen to me. Change your ways so that this will not happen to you. We keep reading. King Nebuchadnezzar's ego was just too great. And we see that this is a year later after he has this dream, he's walking in his palace and he's looking at all the things that have been built, the majesty of his kingdom. And he says, look what I've done. Look at the splendor of what I've done. The Bible tells us at that very moment, he lost his mind. You can read it. It's incredible. He's sent out for seven years, and like an animal, he grazes, he eats grass. Uh, this is not some health and wealth uh, prosperity uh, preacher. This is King Nebuchadnezzar, who's insane, who's eating grass. We're told that his fingernails grow out very long, his hair grows out. Uh, he just becomes this wild man. But in the process of being insane and grazing like, a, like an animal, seven years, he discovers truly who God is. And we get to this point here. I want to throw this up for you. Uh, this is what he gets to in Daniel 4. Now I... Is that the first one? Okay. Now I'm in Echimazer. Praise and glorify and honor the King of Heaven. All His acts are just and true, and He is able to humble the proud. This is His conclusion. The verses before this tell us that he was actually reinstated. He was placed back in charge with greater honor than he had before. So he's king. He goes crazy. He becomes king again when he acknowledges the Lord. The Bible tells us in Daniel 4, the verse just before this, that he 
was revered and respected even more than he was before he went insane. Now he worships the Lord. This is the invitation to all of us, is to acknowledge the greatness of God. The invitation sometimes takes us through suffering so that we can discover this incredible truth. I would imagine that King Nebuchadnezzar uh, was grateful for his seven years of insanity because he discovered the beauty and majesty of, of the real God. The fact of the matter is, is that God will use suffering to draw us to himself, to humble us so that we acknowledge his greatness, acknowledge who he is so that our lives can be transformed. There's not a person here in this room who hasn't gone through some level of suffering. There's no one listening online that has been void of, of, of the suffering that exists in this planet. We've just gone through several years of, of a pandemic. All of us understand what it's like to go through difficult times. Can we agree that a lot of this is divine frustration? A lot of this is God's intentional plan for us to draw us to himself. Romans 8 says this, Romans 8, 19. Paul was very clear about this teaching that God uses suffering to draw us to himself. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to what? Futility. There it is, yeah. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God will use the suffering and this planet to draw us to himself. Uh, we can probably all tell stories. The, the word there, subjected to futility, uh, is an interesting word. Uh, it can be translated frustration. Um, it can also be translated with uh, uh, an absence of vigor. In other words, no stamina of life. That God sucked the life out of the planet. It's this divine sucking of life out of our world so that we could discover the freedom that only comes in him. Uh, look, look at this passage closely with me just for a second. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation has is, is been subjected. It's been intentionally, it's this divine frustration of God has been placed under God's divine frustration so that freedom can be discovered, that the sons of freedom would be discovered. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The purpose of the frustration, intentional frustration, God's divine frustration is so that we will be pulled into understanding the freedom that we can have only in him. It is to save us from ourselves. And so God allows this frustration to take place so that we will be released. I want you to understand as well that this frustration is not something that is just a your frustration. This divine frustration has been happening since the creation. The, the moment Adam rejected God, Adam and Eve, frustration began. They were kicked out of pleasure and put into frustration. 
And so throughout history, the world has been sitting in frustration so that people would discover truly the sweetness of knowing God. This has been his plan. It is currently the plan we're sitting in. Make no mistake, we both, all of us, we are sitting in this frustrated place because God has divinely made it so. We're sitting in divine frustration, divine futility, divine sucking life out of us. This is what we're sitting in right now. And we will continue to live in this divine frustration until he comes back. Or we meet him after we die. But this divine frustration is part of his incredible, amazing grace. This is what the writer Peter wrote. The Apostle Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 1, verse 6. We got it. There it is. He says this. <laughs> in, this in this we rejoice. Right? Let's read this carefully together. In this rejoice. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been what? Grieved by various trials. Have you been grieved by various trials? We all have. So that the testing, the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're being refined. We're being made into something more precious, more amazing through this suffering. This is amazing grace. This is sweet grace. This is love. It's the love of God that has subjected us to this divine frustration. This is my iPad. Uh, I teach from it, use it. It's a, it's, one, it's a tool that I really enjoy using. It's an iPad Pro. Uh, I tell you that because the iPad Pro adds about uh, $300, $400 extra to this price. It's not a cheap tool. I did not buy this iPad. It was a gift to me. It's a sweet gift. I've been using it now for almost two years. Last uh, two Sundays ago, uh, I brought it to church. I was not preaching, but I sat, listened to my son preach. I had my iPad. I was flipping through it. And uh, after church, very excited, I went to Woolworths. You know Woolworths? Best roasted chickens that money can buy. While at Woolworths, uh, I was waiting for my chickens to be done. And uh, this wonderful lady came and pulled her cart up next to us. I had my iPad with me. It was sitting in the, in the grocery cart. This lady came up and came up to me and said hi to me, and I recognized her. She was the parent of, of a, a YWAPer uh, that has come through our ministry for many, many years, many years ago, and it was, we were so glad to see each other. And she said, uh, said, why are you here? I said, I'm here to buy roasted chickens. And she said, I'm buying your chickens. How many chickens are you buying? So I was going to get two. I'm buying your chickens. And I said, that's all right. It, that's okay. I said, thank you very much. But she said, are you going to steal my blessing? And I said, no, you can buy the chickens. What that set up, though, was a situation where both of us were in line trying to check out a Woolworths. She was at one line, I was at another. My iPad was still in my grocery cart. So I had some other things I was buying. She was only buying my chickens. So I bought my stuff, put it in a bag, and then when she was finished, I carried my bags with my stuff over to where she was and picked up my two chickens, put them in my bag, and walked out of the store and left my iPad in the grocery cart at Woolworths. Now, I only used the iPad mainly for teaching and preaching, and so I didn't think about it the rest of the day. I wasn't even aware that it was gone. All day Sunday, all Sunday evening, clueless that my iPad was busy sitting with the chickens at Woolworths. 
Monday came. I didn't think about it Monday. All day Monday. All evening Monday. Clueless. Enjoying life. <laughs> totally unaware that my iPad was missing. Tuesday came. The sun rose again. Jesus is enthroned. <laughs> Guess what? I didn't think about my iPad all day. It's a beautiful day. Hung out with my son and my grandsons. We went and watched the animals at a park. And then that evening, about 9.35 p.m., when I was packing my suitcase in order to fly out the next morning to Kenya, I said, you know what? I need to recharge my iPad because I'm going to be teaching from my iPad when I'm in Kenya. I turned the house upside down looking for this iPad. I couldn't find it anywhere. Looked in my car, looked in my office. Then these things began to piece in my mind. Chicken, roasted chicken, uh, Woolworths. Uh, hmm. Then I leave it at Woolworths because I was at another grocery store that same day. I said, is, is, is it, uh, was it at pick and pay? Was it at a gas station? Did I leave it sitting on the, the, the fender of my, my car? There's all these things. And, and I was absolutely stressed because I like this iPad. I would be venture to say that I probably love it, but not willing to admit it. <laughs> I could not sleep. But before I went to bed at 11 p.m., I did a tracker finder on my phone. This is a long story. Thank you for being patient with me. <laughs> and I found that in the general vicinity, my iPad was somewhere near the, uh, the mall, Grove Mall. But it didn't show specifically where it was. It showed it specifically that I was sitting in a field by the bypass. And so at 11 p.m., yes, I hopped in my car, I took a flashlight by myself, and I went out at 11 p.m. under the bypass, under the bridges there, and yeah, you're going, what's wrong with you, Brian? Yeah, <laughs> I love my iPad, yeah. And I'm searching for my iPad in this field at 11 p.m., thinking, and I'm thinking to myself, what's wrong with you? And I'm having this thought, how did it come to this? I got to leave tomorrow. I'm not packed yet. I can't find my, I've lost my iPad. My bird's heads are falling off. Anyway, that's another reference to another movie. Uh, everything seems to be going wrong. I, I can't find the iPad and decide, you know what? I, I probably need to get out of this field and get in my car and go home because this is not safe. Went back. I couldn't sleep. I could not sleep. About every 45 minutes, I would wake up wondering where my iPad was. So at 5.30, I just got out of bed, and then I tracked it again, and sure enough, it's sitting in this one spot in Grove. I see on my phone, it's got to be there. So as soon as I can, I get in my car, I drive, and I track GPS. My, my, this is unbelievable, the tracking we do for technology. Anyway, so I go and I find that sure enough, my iPad, it says on my phone that my iPad is behind the doors of Woolworths at the, at the Grove Mall. But Woolworths only opens at 9 a.m. So I go back at 8.30, and I call, hoping that they're there. They answer the phone, and I said, Hi, uh, my name is Brian Bullington. I'm wondering if maybe you have an iPad that was put there on Sunday. I said, Yes, we have your iPad. I open the door. I walk in. They hand me my iPad. I said, We tried to find you, but we didn't know who you were. We tried to track you down at the Apple store. They couldn't find you. They didn't have you registered there. So we've just kept it. My iPad had 5% power left in it. I took it home that day, recharged it, put it on the plane, went to Kenya, taught with it, I'm teaching with it today, and was amazed by the grace of God. 
But something else happened. Wow. I discovered, praise the Lord, I discovered how much I don't love lost people. That I love my iPad a lot more than people who don't know Jesus. It was a shock to me. It was just like, when have I stayed up at night being concerned about people's destination? When have I been that stressed over someone who doesn't know Jesus? When have I endangered my life to go find a lost person in a field at 11 p.m.? Man, this exposed my gaps. I don't love like God wants me to love. Praise the Lord that I lost my iPad so I could see what a jerk I am. And that my love needs to increase. I, I am so low on my love for the lost and the things of God. And I needed this difficult moment of my life. An iPad loss, it's not that difficult. I'm just saying, it, you know what I'm saying? It, God used it to expose the gaps in my life. Praise the Lord for the lost iPad. We all have these gaps that we will only see if we go through hard times. And God is gracious enough in his grace to allow these things, to, to intentionally inflict these. Now, I would make a case that this was my own fault that I lost my iPad, okay? I'm not going to blame that one on God, but God graciously used it in my life to expose a gap in me that my, my affections are not where they need to be. The fact of the matter is, though, that not all suffering is God's intention to draw us to himself. Very often, God's suffering, his intentional suffering, his divine frustration is so that we can be used by God in his plan to draw people to himself. That we've done nothing wrong. We're not the guilty parties. But God is going to use us to pull people to himself. We become part of his divine plan to draw other people to himself. I'm not suggesting today that God is going to use you or wants to use you to be the, the, the tip of the spear. He wants us to be the voice of his love for those people when they're going through hard times. God will use suffering to pull us to himself, but he will also use suffering with us to be the ones who pull people to himself. We are part of his plan, and we cannot in any way sidestep this path of suffering that God has invited us to, not just to draw us to himself, but to be used as vessels and ambassadors to draw other people to himself. Look at, look at Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 16 specifically. In terms of our relationship with God, as children of God, we cry Abba to him. We love him dearly. But as his children, so he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. So we are children and we inherit everything. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. There's a proviso there. You see that provided what? Provided we what? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That, that, is, the, that is the theology of grace. That not only is this divine frustration to pull us to himself, but also this divine frustration is that we would be part of his plan. That we would suffer with Christ as his children. That is part of our inheritance. That is part of God's plan for our lives, that we would suffer with Christ. 
so that many can discover faith, that many can discover joy. That's his plan. He goes on in Romans 8, verse 22. For you know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I love that they use the term childbirth. We're groaning, hoping for this birth of this new life. It's not that we're groaning together in the, in the pains of death. We are groaning together in the pains of childbirth. We're groaning so that something new can be born. These are, these are childbirthing pains, not death pains. These are childbirthing pains. We have been invited to suffer with Christ so that something more beautiful than we're experiencing today can be experienced for eternity. We are invited to suffering with Christ, to go along with His agenda so that we can be a voice and a light to people to show them truly what gives life. That's our invitation. That's amazing grace. Amazing grace suggests that God's divine frustration pulls people to himself, but that we also suffer with him. Collateral damage, but collateral blessing. And ultimately, we will reign with him. Ultimately, we will be, sit before his throne. We will experience life that I can only experience with him. Ultimately, that is our destination. This is, this is theology. This is biblical theology, people. This is doctrine that is correct. That suffering is part of the plan. If, if, if you are following and chasing after a theology that suggests that somehow once you give your life to Christ, that all your suffering will be removed and alleviated, you're following a false gospel. A gospel. This gospel will always, that kind of teaching will always lead you back to suffering. We're invited to suffer for something that's greater than this place, greater than this life. Sure, does God heal us in the meantime? Of course he does. Does God bless us financially? Yes, I can tell you many stories of this blessing. Does God bless us with people, with family, with so many different blessings here that we can have here? But ultimately, the overall summary of this world is that we suffer for his sake. And ultimately, we're waiting for the freedom that can only be experienced not on this earth, but in him someday. This is the story of Scripture. This is the story. It it's, has been this way. It is this way. It will continue to be this way until Jesus returns. When Paul's in prison, what does he say? Don't feel sorry for me. God placed me here so that I can be a witness for him. The man in John chapter 9 that is born blind, we see him on the side of the street. He's been born blind. When he and his disciples come to the man who's been born blind, his disciples ask him, Who sinned? Who sinned? Did this man sin or did his parents sin? Why was he born blind? And this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, neither he nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the greatness and good works of God can be revealed. The only way his salvation, I believe, the salvation of this blind man would have ever happened is that he was born blind. He was born into a family of a very strict Jewish tradition and laws that were against the story of the Messiah. They were against Christ. Praise God he was born blind so that he could have his eyes opened by Jesus later. This is what God allows us to experience, this divine frustration that draws us to himself. These stories continue all through Scripture. The story, the story of the Bible really is a story of the frustration of creation that leads people to salvation. 
This is God's divine, intentional plan. When we give our life to Christ, another dynamic happens. When we become children of God, we stop being children of Satan. True? There are only two parents possible. Either Satan's your father or God is your father. That's how it works. The moment you become a child of God, you stop being a child of Satan. However, you live in a world full of people who are still children of who? Satan. We're told in Scripture that, this, that Satan is active in these sons of disobedience, Paul calls them. And, and they will give us a hard time if we are a child of God. You can expect persecution as a child of God. It is, it is God's plan. This is what he said in Matthew, Matthew 10. He says this, No student is greater than his teacher. If they persecuted you, they're going to persecute me. They're going to persecute you. Jesus made this very clear. As my followers, take up your cross and follow me. That's the whole issue, reference to the cross. Take up your cross and follow me. You're going to go through hard times. The cross is not a reference to something good, but suffering. The invitation is to follow him through the suffering. It says, if they did it to you, they're going to do it to me. If they did it to me, they're going to do it to you. This is what our lot is in life. Expect it. Peter, the apostle Peter, when he wrote his letters, he said this. He said, don't be surprised when you go through hard times, as if something strange were happening to you. And that's what we do, right? We're shocked that something bad happened. Me, when I lost my iPad. How did this happen? Why am I sitting in a field at 11 p.m. looking for my iPad? How did it come to this? God says, because I need to teach you something more than you know today. You need it. It's worth it. Worth it. Romans 8, Paul would say this. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What we're going through now doesn't even come close to comparing to the greatness that is coming. What's the end goal? The end goal is that just like King Nebuchadnezzar, we will worship the living God. And we will just enjoy his presence. We will, <laughs> that is our end. That's the goal of God is to bring us to a greater place. Is to bring us to a greater place of worship. If you're still with me this morning, I want you to look in your, in your Bible. To just pull up Romans 8. I, I haven't put this on PowerPoint on purpose because I want this to go with you. I want you to find this and mark it. If you have a smartphone, great. Pull up a Bible app. Romans 8. If you're online, find this passage somewhere in your house. Romans 8, verse 26 and following. This is the promise to the people of God who live in this divine frustrated place. I'm going to read this to you. Romans 8, starting in verse, uh, verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In this divine frustrated place, we have the Spirit of God who intercedes on our behalf. 
And he knows what we need before we do. And he who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. These are the promises of God for us, written by Paul. In this time of suffering, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In verse 31, Romans 8:31, do you see it in your Bible? Romans 8:31. What then shall we say to these things? Paul is saying here, what should we say to this divine frustration? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. And who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sleep, as sheep to be slaughtered. In verse 37, knowing all these things, we are more than what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in our creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is amazing grace. Divine futility, divine frustration, divine suck the life out of us. May it not convince you that he doesn't love you. This is God's love. It is for our good. It is to save us from ourselves and to focus us in a greater, brighter direction. Oh, praise God for the suffering. Mm, I say that carefully. <laughs> There's not a single one of us here or listening online that enjoys suffering. None of us. Oh, Lord, please help me to see your plan in all this. Oh, Lord, help me. On Wednesday evening, I got on a plane with my iPad. At 1.30 a.m. the following day, I left on a plane to Kenya. And so from 1.30 to 5, I flew. I landed. And when I got off the plane, guess what was missing? My suitcase. I had my iPad. I text my wife, and I said, well, I don't have my suitcase, but I guess I need to learn some more about God. I have some more gaps that need to be filled. It was an interesting day for me, but my perspective was better. Praise God, that evening I got my suitcase. Yeah. This is the world we live in, right? In those moments, we have all kinds of different thoughts, right? I had them when I lost my suitcase. I was going, you know what? My job is to put the suitcase, to give that to the ticket agent. Their job is to take my suitcase, put it on the plane. Then other people have jobs. Their job is to make sure it gets on the plane. 
Then there's people at the other airport, their job is to take it off the plane, put it on a bag cart, and then the job of the baggage cart is to get it to me. People did not do their job. <laughs> Why? Because this world has been subjected to divine frustration. <laughs> this is the world we live in. Now, what am I going to learn about through all this? That's the real issue. Oh God, bring me to a place where I see you better, where I experience you more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for King Nebuchadnezzar's story, Father. Thank you for placing that where we can see it and read it and learn from it. Thank you for the example of Daniel, who persevered, who continued to worship you even though there was opposition, who continued to be a light, Lord, through fiery furnace, through the lion's den, through so much suffering, Father, but he stood, stood firm. Lord Jesus, may we be those people. Lord, we know someday we're going to be with you forever. Lord, help us to refocus, to, to understand truly that that's what we're working towards. And Lord, help us to be gracious in the suffering we're experiencing today. Lord, please expose us. Let us see. Let us see truly your purposes and your plan through this situation we're in now. We praise you and we give you thanks. Amen. This is Rico Vecca, and I'm also a pastor at New Song Family Church. I want to thank you for listening to this message today, and it is my hope that you will join us again for another New Song Family Church podcast.